Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Even when things are running good these days, um, there's a lot of adverse circumstances. There's a lot of adverse pressures that come against us. We are living in a time where um, the easy things are, are hard. And I, we looked back then, and I'm going to do a real quick review for, because some of you weren't here for the first two messages, and, and I want to just kind of tag a couple of things. We looked in Judges 3.31 at this guy named Shamgar. Shamgar only got one verse in the entire Bible. And Shamgar was a judge, and his claim to fame was that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox code. He took a sharp stick and defeated 600 soldiers. And at that time in Israel, the Phoenicians or the Philistines had bronze weapons. Israel had no weapons. They, they did not have copper in Israel, and they did not have the skill of metallurgy, and the Philistines were bound and determined to keep them from getting that because they didn't want them to have weapons. And the point was, Shamgar started where he was, he took what he had, and he did something with it. He took a sharp stick and went after men with weapons, bronze weapons, and defeated 600 of them. It's quite an accomplishment, but I'm sure he did it because the anointing of God was on it, on him to do that. That's where we are. We have to do the same thing. We, you cannot change where you are. You are where you are where you are, and you're there for a whole variety of reasons. We all are, but where I am is where I am. What I can change and what I need to change is what I have and ask myself, am I using what I have? And what we all have in common for Christians is we have the Word. But, but it has to, the, the Word has to become more than just dead letters in a book. I had a, a friend when I, when I got, ser- got serious about God. I was in my late 20s, and I had just run from God, run from God, run with the world, very nasty, evil, sinful lifestyle, and finally woke up one day and realized if I was ever going to have a decent life, any kind of life, I was going to have to get back in fellowship with God and get back into a church. And all of my friends just freaked out. I was teaching, I had lots of friends, and one particular friend, um, because he wanted to save me, because I had become a Bible thumper, I was just getting too, too I was thinking this stuff was too real, which it, it, it just always amazed me when I look back on it. But he came to me and he told me, he said, I have read through this book ten times. And he said, I can tell you it makes no sense at all. There are so many internal contradictions in the Bible that he said it cannot. It cannot be God's Word. And, and I was a little puzzled because at that time I hadn't read much of it. I was raised in church. I just didn't ever let the Bible in me. 
So I was ignorant of the word. And that's part of the reason that I ran, because I really didn't have a revelation of who Jesus was. But I came to understand that for him, it was just words on a page. He didn't have a relationship with the one who wrote the word, so he didn't understand the word. He could not understand the word. Because understanding what the word says only comes from relationship. I can tell you what it's like to be married to my wife. You will never know what it's like to be married to my wife unless you are married to my wife. It's a husband and wife is a very special relationship that only the two people involved have a revelation of what's going on. And the tragedy is there are a lot of marriages where there is no revelation and there is no relationship. And they don't know what's going on. They don't know exactly why things are messed up, but they are. For us as Christians, if we're going to imitate Shamgar, if we're going to make a difference in our world and in our life, we have to, first of all, seek after a revelation of the Word, a revelation of the one we're having a relationship with. And his name is Jesus. We read this morning, Luke, and I'm just going to read one verse. This is, is Simeon, who was an elderly man in the temple, and Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in, and, and had, they were coming in to, to pay the price. Any child that, was, that opened the womb belonged to God, and by the law, that child had to be sacrificed. Well, God wouldn't allow human sacrifice, so he, he put a secondary law that said, for that first child, you have to buy them back. They are mine. And they will belong to me unless you buy them back. So the Jews would go in. There was a prescribed sacrifice. Joseph and, and Mary came to Jerusalem, went to the temple to pay the price for Jesus, their firstborn. Simeon ran into them, and Simeon started rejoicing. He recognized, this is my Messiah. He'd never seen it. This is an infant. This, this baby's less than a month old. I, mean, I know everybody says, well, our, our grandchild smiled when they were three days old. No, they just had gas. <laughs> you don't, you, the brain's not functioning enough to, to do all the things we sometimes ascribe to them. And Jesus, at that age, there was nothing remarkable about that baby other than God was present. And Simeon, because of his spiritual stature and his his immer lifelong immersion in the world, or in the Word, recognized the presence of God on Jesus. But this was his statement as he's praising God, thank you, you, I, I, you have allowed me to die. I can die happy now. I know the Messiah has come. But the last thing he said, he was talking about the Messiah, and part of the role that the Messiah had, this is in Luke 2.32, he says, he came as a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That's totally anathema to a Jew. We're Jews, they're Gentiles, we have a relationship with God, they don't, stay away from them. For Simeon to recognize that the, the role of Jesus was to bring a revelation of God to the Gentiles, he also said, and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus did glorify Israel, but Jesus came to bring light into the world. First chapter of John says that Jesus was a bright light in a dark place and the, the, the people ran to the darkness because their deeds were evil and they wanted to hide. 
It's exactly why if, if you go in any city, if you want to cure crime, you put up street lights, bright street lights. You bring light to an area, crime will drop because people won't do things out in the open the way they will in the darkness. Now, for us, we need this revelation. We need to know what Simeon did. We get it. Paul said, or I believe it's Paul, in Hebrews chapter 4, he, in um, verse 11 and 12, he's saying, Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. This is the rest that the Jews in, in the wilderness did not enter into. They kept trying to work things out themselves instead of just trusting God, <clears throat> listening to God, and doing what God said you can do. Instead, they worked and worked and worked, and they messed it up and messed it up and messed it up, and ended up, that generation didn't even get to go into the promised land. They had to wait for their kids to grow up, the ones that grew up in the wilderness. <coughs> Excuse me. And they could go in. But in verse 12, he states how we enter that rest. He said, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword that will pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the word that will tell you whether your thoughts are godly thoughts coming out of your spirit from God, or is this just your worldly way of figuring things out, and you think you've got a better idea. If, you, if you're old enough, you remember that old Ford commercial, we had a better idea. Well, none of us have got a better idea of doing things than God does. Jesus knows how the universe works. He put it together. And he's causing it to run today. And we need to go to the Word to let the Word divide our lives and let us know how things are supposed to run. We see this example. I read this this morning. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Let me read it from um, the New King James first. And then I want to read the New Living Translation because it, it, it words it slightly differently, but it's, it's still the, the, the same essence. Romans 10, 9, 9 and 10, this is New King James. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that, Jesus has, or that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That tells me right there, when I get a revelation of Jesus, and this is for an unbeliever, this is a sinner, not a Christian. Someone comes, preaches Christ to them, says Jesus is real, and God illuminates them, and they finally get a revelation that, wow, this is real. They're still a sinner. They're still a sinner, but they have now believed in their heart. How do they get saved? They have to declare what they believe out of their mouth. Until that declaration is made, they stay a sinner. But when they made the declaration, they make the declaration, Jesus is my Lord. When they make that declaration, Jesus is not their Lord. They're still a sinner. Now, I know this is, this is, um, this is kind of a weird way of phrasing this, but I want you to get this point. A sinner declares what is not actually factually correct. I am a sinner. I have no relationship with God. But I get a revelation that He is God, that, Jesus, that, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I want a relationship with Him, so I declare He is my Lord. When I declare it, it's not factually true. I'm still in a state of sin. But in declaring that, 
I now have a relationship with him. It's the same when you stand before a pastor and you get married. I declare that I will love and obey and trust and do all the things, and I am not married. Not until I make that declaration and she makes that declaration back to me, and then the, the pastor or the priest or whoever it is says, and now you are one flesh. Now you are joined spiritually and, and, and physically. You have become one flesh. When we make the promises, we're not. The reason this is important, the reason I'm emphasizing this, remember, this is New Living Testament. I like the way it phrases. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, future tense. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. That's how you get into the kingdom. You get a revelation... You declare that it's true even when it's not true because the Word says it, not because you've lived a holy life, not because you've talked to Jesus, not because you've ever had a relationship with Him. You just see it in the Word and you say, this is going to be mine. And it becomes yours when you declare it. Not because of your declaration. Remember, Paul said it in, in, in the book of Ephesians, we are saved by grace. And that's not above ourselves. Even the faith that we have is a gift. But the faith isn't activated until it comes out of our mouth. That's how you get saved, and that's how you do everything once you are in the kingdom. You have to look at a situation and say, this is what the Word says. I'm declaring that that's how the situation is, even when it's not that way. Well, brother, you're, just, you're, you're, you're demanding something out of God. No. Other than God said it's true, and I'm taking him at his word. I'm saying you're, you're faithful. You're, you said this is going to be, and I'm declaring I'm going to agree with you. And when you agree with him, and you openly declare that you agree with him, things start to happen spiritually. Now, that's our part. But remember... We're also part of a family. The Apostle Paul, let me just let me throw this out there at you. When, when in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is going to Damascus and he's going to find Christians and kill Christians. That's his sole task. I'm going to go find Christians and when I find them, I'm murdering them because they are, are destroying my, my, uh, the, the Jewish nation because they're, they're heretics. And if they're heretics, they deserve death. That's Saul's um, belief. And he's practicing, and he's got, he's got written permission from the Sanhedrin. But on his way, Jesus appears to him. Basically, a light shines out, or shines around him. The glory of God fell on him and knocked him off his donkey. And he's laying, and in, in basically, this is the Roberts paraphrase, who are you and what do you want? You know, when you're just minding your own business, you're walking on or riding down a trail, and suddenly this bright light just knocks you off your donkey, and you can't see, you're blinded by this light, then, and you just, what's going on? And a voice came out of the light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus did not say, 
Why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my children? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus looks at us, and he doesn't see you. He sees himself. He so identifies with us that he does not see a difference between you and me and himself. We need to get that same revelation when we look at him that we don't see. I don't see me and him. I just see him in two places. I so identify with him that that's all I can see. The reason I say that is we are part of that body of Christ in the, in the world. And because we are part of a body, we need to have people in our lives because theoretically, me and Jesus, I can, the two of us can handle anything that ever comes at me. But that's not how he's designed the church to work. He's designed us to work and work together. And I will prove it to you because probably, at least in my estimation, the Apostle Paul was probably the strongest Christian that I can, can even envision. And we have a record that he did quite a bit. So what was his life like? Well, we saw in Acts 9 that um, um, he got knocked off the donkey. He was blinded. But, but the voice of God said, Now Saul, get up from here, go into Damascus, go to this house, and just stay there. And I'm going to send somebody to talk to you. Again, think a little bit with me. Jesus, is by the Spirit, has manifested his glory around Saul. He's talking to him, but he doesn't finish the conversation. He says, go to Damascus. I'm going to send a man to talk to you to finish this conversation. God does not, he does in, in one sense, he, he communicates to us directly. Paul said it in Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. He speaks to us. He leads us. But he also calls us into to communion with one another so that we, can help lead one another. We can, can bounce ideas off of one another and judge things by one another's experience. Because, let's face it, I can hear, I can think I'm hearing God and it's not God. I've, I've known a lot of people. I had a friend, good friend, when I was first, after I first got um, serious, he came and declared one day that, that he was divorcing his wife and marrying a girl that he worked with. They were both Christians, but their spouses weren't holy enough, and they could never fulfill the call on their life unless they divorced their spouses and got married. And together, they would make a really spiritual couple, and then they could, you know, have a great ministry. And you look at them, and literally you scratch your head and say, did you take a stupid pill today? And he actually, he was so deceived, he believed it. He believed it to the core of his being. And I will never forget another friend of mine, we went into the class, a classroom in our church, and we set him in a corner, and we sat on either side to where he could not get out. And we talked to him, and I mean, we talked hard to him. And then we started praying for him. And it took about two or three weeks, and finally he came to his senses and realized, Lord, what am I doing? This is wrong. 
This is just flat wrong. And it's obvious, once, once the light went off, it was like, how could I be so stupid? Because you got deceived. But it took other Christians to, to help you realize this is a deception. Paul had to have the same thing. In fact, Paul said, he said in, in the, the second letter to the Corinthians, he said, from, from this point on, I, I regard no one according to the flesh. Basically, what, what Paul was saying in, in 2 Corinthians 5.16 was, I don't judge people and I don't judge situations by their outward appearance. I want to know the motivations of the heart. I want to know what's God doing in here. Is this something I need to get involved in? Is this something I need to avoid? I'm going to judge the real reasons behind it and not just the facade that I can see. Because you can put on a facade pretty easily. Well, for Saul, in Acts 9, after Jesus has knocked him off of the, uh, the, the donkey and the, his companions take him to Damascus, he, God goes to this guy named Ananias. And he said, Ananias, I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul. And Ananias said, yeah, get thee behind me, Satan. I know about Saul. He kills Christians. I ain't going to pray for that booger. If he's in trouble, just leave him in trouble. And God said, no, he's a chosen vessel of mine. And I have selected you to go pray for him and to describe to him what he's going to have to do for me. Ananias, without Ananias' um, um, consent to go talk to Saul and tell Saul what God has said, who knows if Saul would have been who Saul was? Who knows if he'd have become Paul and written half, two-thirds of the, of the New Testament. We know that Ananias at some point finally said, Okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. This is kind of a risky situation. This is like walking into Hitler's office and saying, I'm just here to let you know I'm a Jew. Your chances of survival, not real good. But he went and he talked to Saul and he spoke to Saul and he prayed for Saul and the, the scales that were on Saul's eyes fell off and suddenly Saul could see and he knew. So what does he do? If you read in Galatians, we're not going to go there, but if you read in Galatians, Paul says that after that point, he went off into the desert. They, they speculated he was probably in modern-day Saudi Arabia, wandering the Arabian desert. For three years, God taught him directly. For three years, Jesus walked with him, talked with him, and shared with him out of the Old Testament, shared this revelation of, of Christ in you, and that, that God had taken the Jew and the Gentile and made one new man. And that was a radically different gospel presentation. And then Saul came, Paul came out after three years, and he met, I mean, he still has a reputation. Believe me, your reputation doesn't leave you very easily. When you get a bad one, I remember going to my 20th high school reunion, and a couple of my, one of my best friends in high school um, found out that I was a pastor. And his first response was, wow, I would love to see the kind of church you pastor. Why? Because he remembered me from my rounder days. And I was a rounder. If it, you know, if it felt good, I did it. If it felt real good, I did it twice. I, that's just how I was. He hadn't seen me in 20 years. He had no idea how high it changed. Paul's in the same situation. He goes to Jerusalem, and, but he goes at the behest of another man, 
a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas, literally, that name means he's an encourager. Without Barnabas going to, to Paul and saying, Paul, let me take you to, to Jerusalem and you can meet the elders. This is Peter and <coughs> excuse me, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, are the leaders of this church. And here you've got this guy that, that persecuted the church, killed Christians. By his own admission, he said, I'm the least of every saint because I persecuted the church. And he goes in and he's going to share his revelation that Jews and the Gentiles need to come together as one new man. And they recognized God on him, and Peter and James said, yes, we agree. They gave him a couple of little things that they wanted preached or wanted to make sure that he emphasized, and he had no problem with what they added to it. But then what's he do? They gave him nowhere to go. He had no platform. He went back to Tarsus, where he grew up. But what does Barnabas do? Barnabas went after him. Got him, brought him back to a little town called Antioch. It was about 90 miles from where Paul was. And Paul stayed there for a year, and Paul taught for the first time, pastored for the first time at the church at Antioch. And it says in, in Acts chapter 11 that there... For the first time, or, or uh, believers were called Christians. Literally, it means they were called little Christs. He got these people so thoroughly convinced of the power of Christ in them that they started acting like Jesus acted. They started laying hands on the sick and people were recovered. They were doing miracles because of Paul's preaching. Without Barnabas going to get Paul out of Tarsus and said, Come do this. Would Paul have grown discouraged? Because we know that Paul did get discouraged, very discouraged. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is after Barnabas and he had split. In 2 Corinthians 7, this is, what, this is Paul's own testimony. He's in um, Greece somewhere, but he's, he's called to Macedonia, and he can't get there. He says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, it says, When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. This great apostle that wrote most of the New Testament admits, I was fearful. I was scared. And I had everybody in his duck attacking me from the outside. I had opposition everywhere I turned. I had opposition, and I was dealing with fear on the inside. How did he overcome it? The very next verse. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. It was another Christian that showed up to say, Paul, you can handle this, buddy. And Titus was a disciple of Paul's. Now, Titus was a special man. Titus had, had um, uh, he was a pastor at, on the island of Crete. And even today, 2,000 years later, if, if I call you a Cretan, you probably know what I mean. They had, the, the, the people of Crete had a reputation for being kind of rough. And I had one pastor uh, back when I was in Bible school that said Titus only had one message, and he preached it over and over. And his message was, sit down, shut up, and listen. 
So he had some, he had some chops. He, 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 was, he was the man for that job. But he also was able to come and, and take Paul and encourage Paul and get him to, to overcome his fear and overcome all of the, the opposition from the outside. But we, you, you see this, not only do you have, you know, um, you need the right voices in your life, You've got the voice of the Spirit. We already saw in Romans 8. Those that are led by God are the children of God. Spirit of God leads us. We have His voice, but we need the voice of other people also. But we also need to be in the right place. While there, is a, there are people that will... You need the right people speaking into your life. You also got to be in the right spot. Uh, Elijah is probably the best example of that. Elijah went before um, um, the nation of, of Israel. Ahab was king. Jezebel was queen. And he said, there's going to be a drought. By my word, God has told me to speak it, and the, the rain is not going to come. And then God, and this is in 1 Kings 17, after um, Elijah had said that, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. There was one spot that God had provided for Elijah to eat and drink, and it was the, book, the brook Cherith. Elijah was a great man of God, but if Elijah had gone to the brook whatever, the ravens would have been over at the brook Cherif, bringing bread, meat, and he'd had water. He'd have starved to death, died of thirst if he didn't go where God told him to go. There is a place where God provides. But also notice this little fact. God commanded the ravens to feed him. Ravens are unclean birds. They are not clean. In fact, if you look back at the, the story of Noah... Noah brought, uh, released two birds. One was a, a dove and one was a raven. The raven never came back. The dove came back with the, the branch of the olive tree. Ravens are not clean, and yet God used ravens to bring food to his prophet. What's that tell me? It tells me that sometimes your provision is going to come in ways that you don't really feel comfortable with. I remember, um, this was years ago, when um, Brother Oral Roberts um, had an appeal for money to try to save the city of faith. And there was a, a dog track owner in South Florida who was a multi-multi-millionaire and wasn't a Christian, wasn't a very nice man, but he called up Oral Roberts Ministries and he said, I heard, heard Oral's plea and God wants me to give you, and I forget, it was several million dollars, to finish out this campaign so you can get that building done and get it equipped and, and open that hospital. There, I know a lot of Christians would have said, I'm taking that money. That's tainted money. Oh, Oral was smart enough to realize it's money. And money is just a tool. And he took it from a raven. Elijah didn't look at God and say, God, I can't. This, this, is, this is from an unclean bird. How can I accept this food? It's unclean. Oh, he just ate. But he also, because this is, this is part of the thing that we get this mindset, that we think, well, this is how God's doing it, so this is how God must always want to do it. 
No, there came a time because of the drought that the brook dried up and there was no more water. And God said, okay, Elijah, now that the brook has dried up, you need to get up and you need to go and go to Zarephath. And you need to go, uh, which is in Sidon, and you need to go there because I've commanded a widow to provide for you there. In the middle of the provision, God said, this is not going to work anymore. Get over here now. Again, Sidon is in the middle of, of Phoenicia. It's a Philistine city. It's full of unbelievers. This widow was not a Jew. She was probably an unbeliever. And yet God went to her and said, told her, there's a man coming and you're going to get blessed because I've sent him and you're to provide for him. And when Elijah showed up, if you remember the story, um, Elijah showed up and she is out gathering a few sticks and he asked her for a drink and she brought him a drink. He said, now could you also bring me a little loaf of bread, a little cake? And she said, well, I would, but she said, Basically, it's just my son and I, and I've just got a little flour and a little oil, and I was getting ready to bake our last cake, and then we were going to die because i got no more food, and I don't know where I can get food. And Elijah, this hard-hearted Christian, said, Now, poor widow, you make me a cake first. How many times have you heard people criticized because they received an offering from someone that was destitute and poor, and they came and wanted to give into a ministry? And people say, you shouldn't have accepted, you should have given to them. No, this was that widow's chance to plant a seed into God's kingdom. And she took the little bit of flour and the little bit of oil, and she fried up a little cake, and she brought it to Elijah, and he ate, and she went back, and lo and behold, there's still flour in the, meal, in the, the container, and there's still oil in the container. So she made another cake for her and her son. And lo and behold, there's still flour and there's still oil. And they ate on that little bit of flour and a little bit of oil for months. In fact, later in the story, the boy from the description probably had an aneurysm and his, one of his vessels in his head exploded and he died. And the woman, rather than going into mourning, she went to Elijah and said, <clears throat> Excuse me, man of God. My son needs you. And Elijah went, laid on the boy. I don't remember the exact story, but God raised that boy from the dead because this woman had provided for Elijah. So here's the point. We've got to, we're going to face adversity. We need to take the word first, get it into our heart, get a revelation of it, and then when we struggle, we need to be in communion with people so that we can encourage them I've said this years, for years, my wife and I. It's like, pray that, ne that both of us don't get down at the same time. Because if we do, who's going to pull each other up? And, and it's been our practice that usually when she's having a real hard time, I can pull her out of it. And then when I'm having a hard time, she's not having a hard time, she can pull me out of it. We're there for one another because we're committed to one another. We need to have that same commitment to one another. And you need to be able to, to be open enough to go to people and say, I need help. And unfortunately, in our world, in our Christianity, it's hard for people to admit they need help because Christians look down on you. Well, you're not where you supposed should be spiritually. Like, really, where's that supposed to be? Where the apostle Paul was, where he had fear in his heart, and he's about to crumble, so God sends Titus to encourage him? 
We, there are no spiritual giants in, in, in Christianity. They don't exist. We may be a spiritual giant one moment and down under the barrel the next moment. And when we're up, we need to look for people to help. When we're down, we need to look to people to come and encourage us and help us. And we need to be willing to help other people without getting judgmental, without thinking, what is their problem? I wonder what hidden sin is in their life to cause this. You don't have to have a hidden sin to be tested. You just have to be alive in the world, and you're going to be tested. Testing comes from being alive because we've got an enemy who does not want us to succeed. That's why we're called together so that we can do it. But then you, the, the third part of it is you also got to be in your place. If God's called you here, you need to be here. And, and I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not criticizing anybody that's not physically here, but I'll just give you an example. It's a beautiful afternoon out there. Why is this building not full? I'll tell you, there's only one reason. People don't view it as important. They view their recreation as more important than being in church. It's the reason churches aren't packed out on Sunday morning. People do not value gathering together, hearing the word, worshiping God, and being in fellowship with one another. If, that doesn't, if you don't value it, you won't practice it. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.